0: Hello and welcome to
1: Micro, Micro, Michael, Marco, Startups at the Edge.
0: Those voices you heard were students at American University and their professor, Jeff Soslin, who was kind enough to invite us to do a live show. Jeff teaches international business. Uh, this class is global entrepreneurship and that's why we thought it would be a great Uh, opportunity to involve the class in one of our podcasts on the micro and macro aspects of innovation.
2: And our topic today is strategy at startups and our guests are Anna Mason and David Hall of the venture capital firm Revolution and from Revolution's Rise of the Rest Seed Fund. So please extend a warm welcome to Anna and David.
0: So, we have a lot of firsts with this show. It's our first in person interview, although Marco's still remote. Um, it's the first interview out of my makeshift recording setup in my basement, and you could see that I wasn't totally prepared for it because the thing I left out to plug us in was left out um, on my bureau. Um, <laughs>
2: It's, it's also like, the first time that Michael wears a jacket for a podcast. <laughs> I, I totally thought true. I should still wear a hoodie. One of us had to, but it's the first time I see Michael in a jacket on our podcast.
0: That's And I chose a picture <laughs> in honor of the, uh, the cherry blossoms, which, you know, Mark, <laughs> um, it its first live audience show. It's the first interview with two people at once. It's the first interview of anyone from a venture capital firm, you know, really anyone whose day job is not at a startup, um, and it's the first interview of a company that was just featured on 60 Minutes. I know it's a step up to go from 60 Minutes to M4 Edge, so you know, congratulations on making this leap. Um, Marco had this had this idea uh, before we get into the interview phase to get a sense of the room. Um, Jeff tells me that this has been done before, but we're going to add a s- slight twist. So, how many of you um, are planning on or interested in a career in entrepreneurship or in venture capital somehow? Raise your raise your hands. So, four. Okay, um, hold that hold that thought, and we'll get back to it at the end. Um, Professor Susslin, before we get going, anything you want to say about? the class, why don't you uh, come on up.
1: Great group of students.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying to suck up at the
1: end of the semester. (laughs) Um, It's a very international group. Um, As I was mentioning, uh, we have have in the room, uh, South Korea, Peru, Norway, France, United States, China. Um, These students, Intern three days a week related to uh, international business and entrepreneurship, and then they have two days of full days of classes, and they get to hear from amazing speakers, um, like what what they're hearing from today.
0: Fantastic. Thanks for that. Okay. Um, Marco, do you want to kick us off?
2: Yes, absolutely. And I think for the first time, we will also kick off in a slightly different way. So instead of our irreverent opening line for interviewees, which is, why on earth are you doing this? Let me ask Anna and David, can you please talk a bit, describe the Revolution Fund and in particular, the Rise of the Rest for the audience and for the students in the room?
3: Sure. Uh, David and I are both investment partners at Revolution's Rise of the Rest Seed Fund, We are the earliest stage fund of a family of three funds at Revolution uh, that invest in early stage startups all across the country. So Revolution was first started here in Washington, D.C. back in 2005 by Steve Case, who's most well known as the co-founder and CEO of AOL or America Online, um, a company that fundamentally changed the way uh, we Think about and use the internet, and probably none of you were born <laughs> uh, when, uh, when it came online. Um, our investment strategy is to see opportunity through the lens of geography. What that means is that in the venture capital space, about $100, million, $100 billion a year gets invested into startups all across the United States. 75 to 80% of that goes to Silicon Valley, New York City, and Boston. So our fundamental investment thesis and belief is that really smart people are building transformative businesses in cities all across the country, and they're not getting a fair shake at access to capital. So we look for deals and get to know entrepreneurs in places that most venture capital investors don't. Um, Our fund is a $150 million fund that's backed by some fairly um, iconic and well-known leaders from the business community, the technology community, and the investment community, such as Eric Schmidt, Jeff Bezos, Howard Schultz, Michael Bloomberg, uh, David Rubenstein, Meg Whitman, Tory Birch, uh, and many and many others. We make investments that range from two hundred fifty thousand dollars to a million dollars into early-stage companies that are at the Uh, seed or early early stage level. So they may have a product in market, they may be on their way to finding product market fit, be generating some type of revenue. We look for investment opportunities across all industries, all across the country.
0: Okay, so thanks for that, Anna. What led you guys to Rise of the Rest? David, maybe you want to start first. Why did you choose this particular path? Why did you choose Revolution? Why did you choose Rise of the Rest? So a little bit of it, a
4: little bit of the answer to that is that it kind of chose me. Okay. Um, when 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 Steve first started Revolution, the goal was to build these big iconic businesses, focusing on, as Anna was mentioning, these transformative and disruptive categories like healthcare, like real estate, like transportation, like financial services, big big pockets of the U.S. economy that were ripe for disruption, and as 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 the the company evolved and as the, 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 the notion that the ability to transform these industries had to start with entrepreneurship, the ability to find those entrepreneurs who are changing, who are, who are building those disruptive technologies led us to venture capital. How do you support entrepreneurs who are building disruptive companies? You've got to invest in them and you've got to provide the, the capital and the advice and the, the ecosystem for them to thrive. And the first step in that is usually capital. And so, so we started investing, you know, mostly Steve's capital, but then, then we began raising additional funds to accelerate that and invest more money into some of these entrepreneurs. And one of the catalysts, uh, Steve wrote a book called The Third Wave. In it, he, he profiles basically the, the, the internet has gone through three different sort of major shifts. The first shift was the first wave when in fact, everyone was getting online originally that, That was sort of the ISP world where where people were able to get onto the internet and it was consumerized enough so that you didn't need a computer science degree to to log onto the internet. The second wave was sort of the applications on the internet. There was stuff to do on the internet. The the poster children for that wave were Amazon and Facebook. You could now do things on the internet. The third wave, which he he profiles, is, is at a time when there's a ubiquitous internet and then machines can begin to talk to machines and the ability to have like internet of things technologies where you walk into a room and your phone tells, tells the lights to come on. So you're not, there's no human interaction. There, there's also huge swaths of things like agriculture and autonomous transportation where having a ubiquitous internet and having machines talk to machines unlocks huge opportunities in really cool categories. We took advantage of that and we saw that and we said, you know, there's got to be a way to, to expedite that, that, that third wave approach, that third wave of, of disruption, but find it, as Ana was mentioning, outside of the coasts, in places where there's lived experience. In pla- it's very hard to think about agriculture being disrupted unless you live in places where there's farms, right? It's hard to think of New York City folks transforming agriculture. Right, and, and and there are other huge categories of, of, of the economy. Education is one where you guys are educated basically the same way that your grandparents are educated, and like technology can fundamentally change that. But one of the th- the key elements of that is you've got to have some lived experience to be able to affect that change. You've got to. It, it's it's much easier to disrupt education having been a teacher or having been a principal or having had some sort of role, major role in education, education policy, than just sort of being a smart. College graduate with an engineering degree, so so those factors sort of converged into what what we call the rise of the rest, and sort of and and the fund is its sort of crown jewel, is it is it expedites the capital into these into these entrepreneurs into these regions where there's just really huge disruptive opportunity.
2: This is excellent. And Michael, if I can, I wanted to expand a bit on this because you mentioned at the beginning the geography aspect of Rise of the Rest. And it's something that resonates with us because for both Michael and me, something we find very exciting about the digital industrial wave of innovation is exactly its potential to spread both innovation and economic growth to a more diverse and a broader area of the United States economy. But let me ask you, expanding on what you were just saying, what do you look for in a rise of the rest investment? What distinguishes the companies you find elsewhere around the country? Is there anything that makes them, in your view, qualitatively different from other companies that are in the revolution portfolio?
3: So, There are a lot lot of different answers to that question, Um, in particular because we invest across industries and there are different metrics uh, that are relevant to different industries. So looking at a SaaS business, software as a service, you might look for a different MRR, monthly recurring revenue number, than you would if you were looking at a consumer business, the sold direct-to-consumer or medical device business. Um, that was, you know, charting its path, you know, through FDA approval and into the market. But at a high level, something that I think unifies all those opportunities for us, um, for me, is the, the marriage of an outsized vision and a transformative vision, coupled with the delivery of a very simple product that can surprise and delight either the consumer or, or a business, depending on whether or not uh, the startup is selling directly to consumers or into businesses or perhaps into governments. And that sounds really great. um, But I think in, in reality, that is very hard to do um, and very hard to deliver at an early stage. When you are uh, for an early stage startup, the the magic is that you're creating something out of nothing. Um, And I think that's a lot of, what you know, what what drives um, us as as investors, and you know, attracts entrepreneurs, you know, to us and to our Rise of the Rest Fund, is that you know, venture capital. I think in many ways sits at the intersection of um, optimism uh, and reality. So you 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 oh. want to be able to reinvent the future. You have to have the practical application and be able to build the business infrastructure and chart that that strategy and that path to growth to be able to execute on it. And I think part of what's really special about Rise of the Rest is is that we see opportunity through the lens of geography. And you know, for us, I think what that also really means is that you know, if if you have ever felt like an underdog or an outsider, um, that there is an opportunity for us to be the fund, be the investor and the champion to back you because 75 to 80% of the country right now from a venture investment standpoint is, is by and large outside of um, you know, the, the normal tracks of access to capital in the area. I don't know if you'd
4: add anything else, yeah, I, I would, I would, I would bring it one layer lower and just say everything that she mentioned sort of hinges on people right? It's, it's, it's how audacious are you as an entrepreneur that thinks about sort of very high level strategy, but then can back it up with sort of sequential, like on Monday, I'm going to do this. On Tuesday, I'm going to do that. On Wednesday, I'm going to do that. I'm going to manage my team to accomplish these, these small goals that, that still kind of meet the high level strategy because the reality of entrepreneurship is you're not doing it in a vacuum. You're, you're doing it literally on an, on an open, rough sea. And the agile entrepreneur, the one who can still head, heads, you know, due north, even though sort of the waves and the, the tactics are going to take you over and through and around, like, like you've still got to head to that, achieve that strategic direction, but you've got to be super nimble and super able to sort of see opportun- little pockets of opportunity Along the pathway. And so I I think that everything that she said, I totally agree with. I just, I I want, I want everybody to understand it's, but it's about people. It's about asking, it's about focusing your team on building the simplest product that can achieve an audacious sort of uh, a vision. And it's, 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 it's nothing that's done. It's nothing that sort of exists within one founder's head. It's nothing that one person can do alone but it's sort of how do you entrepreneurship is all about how do you take scarce resources and and sort of allocate them in the way that can deliver a greater result than the sum of the individual parts. And I think leveraging that is what what we re- is one of our first tests. Like, is this entrepreneur able to do that? Do they have the domain expertise? Do they have the vision? Do they have the the organization to sort of drive this process forward while still sort of keeping mind of like we're going to change the world.
3: Yeah, so good and you know in early stage venture investing is um is a lot about the risk reward calculation so or the risk return calculation so at, at the earliest stages and this actually happens in charts throughout the life of an investment in a company you assess a series of risks so to david's point team risk is is one of the first things that you look at um the second you know, piece of it might be market risk. Um, how big is this market opportunity? Um, the, the third is uh, product or tech risk. Um, and that means you know, both does this product actually solve the problem? Is how big is the problem is that market question? Um, and how defensible is, you know, is what is being built? And so you go through these series of assessments and then there's the question of, well, what's the company worth? What's it worth today? What does it have the potential to be worth going forward? And that assessment is, is I think, in many ways, this question of how de-risked are each of these verticals at this stage? And the more risk that still exists, the more compensation you'll want to get for being able to put capital into a company. At an early stage, so therefore you try to get in a, at a lower valuation. The more that's been de-risked uh, up along the way of, of the company, um, you know, building out and progressing, the higher the company's valuation, the lower amount of ownership you'll get as an investor for the you know for the same dollar amount invested.
0: So this is great. So we've we've spoken about de-risking, which is sort of one of the the magic elements of of building a successful startup. We talked about Rise of the Rest's strategy and investment thesis, the geography, the domain expertise, the power of people and team and the, the vision. All of that stuff makes it paints a really clear picture of what Rise of the Rest is looking for in your own strategy as a fund. The topic of today is strategy more generally, and I want to pivot a little bit, um, and I didn't use that word pivot intentionally, but it just comes up naturally when talking about startups. So strategy, the word strategy means different things to different people. Sometimes it is confused with tactics. Um, Sometimes it's confused, worse, it's sometimes confused with aims or goals. Um, When you are looking at a startup, how do you think about strategy? How do you define what strategy is? What's, you know, etymologically, what is strategy to you? I don't know what the Greek derivation of the <laughs> word is. I wouldn't be able to tell you anyone if it's Greek. But but I let's I, just I, catch that he did the etymology of etymology.
4: <laughs> <laughs> I you know I I when I when I hear a company articulated strategy, it, it it usually for me means how are we going to make the biggest impact possible in in our in our respective market, right? Are we? And and the cool thing is that vision and that strategy can sort of evolve and grow. You know, we're going to make the best way to connect people at Harvard. You know, we're going to create a little Facebook for Harvard University students, right? That's one little vision that then expands to like a third of the globe, right? And I think that the ability to recognize that, that evolution of that strategy is important and making sure that the strategy is is dynamic to market changes. But I think it's the articulation of sort of our the company's first set of, Achievements. Like we will be successful if we do the following, and 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 I think that the, the differentiation, the key differentiation between the strategy and the tactics for me is, you know, we will achieve X, and and the follow-up question is to achieve X, we will do the following. The first pronouncement is was the strategy. The second, to achieve that, are the tactics. To so to achieve the strategy of connecting a billion cars autonomously to the network, we will first build the technology that, that will do that. We will second sort of outfit the cars. We will third partner with cities so that we can have sort of the, the, the regulatory permission to do this, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it, it, the clear delineation between strategy and tactics is really important. And what, what the hardest thing is for a lot of entrepreneurs in my opinion is to take, to be able to effectively manage both. There, there is often a really great strategist and a, Who's really, really bad? Because it, to to achieve a strategy requires sort of an orthogonal thought, but like to achieve tactics, you've got to come in and just be very regimented and be be a sort of it's it's the best of left and right brains, and and to be able to the best entrepreneurs are the ones that can fuse those or at least hire to to support those in a way that sort of allows for both the strategy to go forward. And the execute the tactics, the execution to go forward in the same direction at the same time, somewhat along the same pace. Like if you can do that, you're you're golden. The hard part is managing it when it's not exactly that way, and it's ninety nine percent of the time the latter.
0: Right. And do you have a different definition of
3: no? Strategy? I, you know, I um, by and large no. For me, strategy. You know, I spoke earlier about you know one of the the core pieces of investability that I look for is the marriage of outsized vision and clean and simple product. I think the strategy is how you thread the needle between those two. Um, a, a great topical example for me um, is actually a look at Lyft, which just recently went public. If you read uh, their S1, um, which is a former like recovering Wall Street junkie, I I enjoy doing Um, so it's you know it's the document that a company files in anticipation of going public and you read about this vision to that actually has nothing to do with ride-sharing and this vision is about this fundamental transformation of cityscapes and the use of um, of roads and this scarce resource that we have within cities and what is actually possible if the world shifts from car ownership to car sharing and you no longer need to actually own this asset that you use infinitesimally. Um, That was married to the product of a ride sharing app that then basically says, people actually, now you don't, now you have an alternative that sits in between taking public transportation and, and buying a car. You can just You know, hop into someone else's car when you need a ride and pay the price for it. The strategy of how you try to achieve that vision by implementing that product, strategy is the rinse-repeat of what gets you there. Um, So that, to me, is a really, I think, topical example um, of, of how I internalize strategy.
2: That's excellent. That's very, very clear. And also something which I think is important though, when we talk about strategy for startups is that by definition, startups are in the early stages of their professional lives. And so things are changing very, very quickly. And therefore, over time, their ability to plan will differ. How they plan will differ. The horizon planning will change. Can you help us think a bit on how the actual ability to strategize and the ideal strategy for a startup evolves as the startup itself comes of age. So what does strategy for a startup look in the first month, in the first year? And then what about the years two to three, four, five, and seven?
4: Sure. Yeah. We <laughs> uh, yes, so, we so both can. This is, this is good. Um, you know, it's funny, I, I'll use it as an example, a company that I worked with, that was an education company, they built a test prep platform for college, for, for high school students going into college. And so they would sell, they would sell to students and parents to help them take standardized tests, right? And so as, as, they're, as they were going through the, the, the method of their strategy, we want to obviously get as many people and as many tests on the platform so we could help these students study better. And as they were looking at it, they were saying, well, wait a minute, you know, this is, this is really hard. Like, we, we have to gear up every summer, basically, to sell these tests into these students so they can take their standardized tests in the fall or the spring, and then we're done with them. Like, once they, they're one and done, like, they take, once you take your ACTs, how many people took the ACT more than once? Like, nobody does that. So it's like, so we're going to spend all of this money developing this technology. We're going to sell it once, and then those, those customers go away forever that's a really hard path to get to become a bajillion dollar company, right? And so they said, but wait a minute, our technology is also highly applicable for other people who are taking other types of tests. And what, what groups of people take lots of tests? And if you look in the professional world, there are tons of people who have to tons of professions, which require consistent certification, doctors, nurses, um, technology specialists, et cetera. And so they said, well, we can adapt our technology and sell it into companies or sell it into organizations like credentialing organizations that says, you know, if you want to be a pediatric nurse, you have to be constantly recertified. And so they they pivoted their model from being, and, and this was a huge huge change, right? Because we are no longer going to sell to consumers. We're going to now sell to businesses to 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 organizations who will then help uh, certify these pediatric nurses, for example. And to do that, we're going to change. So we're going to fire basically all of our customers. We're going to say, "No, no, high school students studying for the ACT. We don't want you, your business." We're going to take all of our revenue, go to zero, in hopes that we could bring up more potential revenue in in another strategy. And like the ability for that 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 barometer to know when it's when they're richer or or, or more lucrative markets in which to fish, that's a huge strategic shift. And so so the day one strategy was let's go get a million consumers to dip a credit card and we'll, we'll be able to sell them ACT prep. And, and sort of what happened was that was hard and got harder and the technology was adaptable to other places, other, other industries. And so you saw that shift quickly start to happen and says, well, if, it, if it's adaptable for credentialing for nurses you know, maybe it's adaptable for accountants and sort of or, or or lawyers who have to take a bar. Maybe it's adaptable for other people who would be able to, to take these exams more frequently. And that strategic shift was how do we go from take the core asset, the people, the technology that we have, transition it into a more lucrative, bigger, better, more robust uh market, and 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 do that transition in a seamless way so that we can sort of preserve the maximum amount of our people and our technology and hopefully some of our revenue. And it, it's, it's very few companies can successfully do that, but it's, to me, it's about having that strategic understanding. And in one of Anna's points earlier, a really core simple product that could manage that transition, right? It's, it's the same product that people were taking the ACT prep on that you're now studying on how to, you know, how to be a better pediatric nurse? That that core product is still there, but it's just now applied to a different model.
3: And yeah, I think two um, two other examples that I think are an interesting look at the evolution of strategy as, as a startup charts its course. So first, you know, sort of as a as an homage to the name of you know your podcast, with both having both a micro and a macro outlook. That is, I love it. That is <laughs> here you go. So. When a company first starts out and it's in ideation phase, right, that's in many ways a lot about the macro. Like what is this big outsized vision that we have? How are we going to transform an industry, um, transform the way people consume, think, react? You've got the big vision. Then you actually have to completely shift gears and in the inception of the company when you get your earliest funding, you have to actually go super micro and you have to build the thing And you have to test it and you have to do it in a pretty small confined way to start to prove that your assumptions either work or don't work. And then you rejigger things and you iterate and and you basically get that um, proof of concept. And then you go a little bit bigger, but you're still very much so in the micro world and you prove product market fit. And so we actually see this. We have a number of investments in our company that in our fund that um, have a, a strategy where they basically repeat the same thing in markets. So they work with, um, uh, you know, car dealers, but it's focused on a specific market. They do last mile business-to-business delivery, um, but it's all in one market. So that that last piece of the micro of the micro step um, in their strategy is making sure that they've got sort of a, an end-to-end proven solution in one market, and they've got these processes in place for that. And then you go macro again, and that's part of what funding in early growth round is about, is about saying you've, you've actually proven that you've got product-market fit, but now go do it in a dozen markets and rinse and repeat. And so then you, you pull the lens back and you say, okay, how can we take this strategy that we've implemented um, in a defined path and, and expand it? So I think that's one interesting example of how, uh, strategy has to evolve as you grow. Another is, um, thinking about the direct to consumer market. And so I imagine, um, many of, of our friends in the audience here, maybe shop off Instagram or, um, you know, buy things on, on your phone. So the evolution of the direct to consumer, uh, retail market has been really fascinating over the last 10 years. And it's, and it's, It's evolved and risen in lockstep in many ways with the rise of social media platforms, the rise of of, um, mobile payments, and the comfort level that consumers have, like purchasing online. So how that translates for an early stage company is part of your strategy when you're just getting out of the gate, if you've got a really great brand and product that you think will will resonate with people, you can reach your first customers pretty quickly and pretty cheaply and, and prove that... like a core group of people really love what you have to buy. We have a women's um, travel wear company that actually started just selling swimsuits and they're based out of like St. Louis and they crush it. Um, They were able to prove with this basically with a social media marketing strategy that they could acquire customers really quickly who absolutely loved what they were doing. But there are tons of businesses in consumer. It's far from like a winner take all type of market. To be the company and to be the startup that can scale, you then have to be able to figure out, okay, how does our strategy shift? We've sort of tapped out on reaching customers really cheaply through Facebook and Instagram and and Snapchat. Like now, how are we going to reach them? How are we going to think about different marketing channels or partnership channels that we can use? To acquire those customers at, at still a relatively inexpensive pace. Cause if we just keep with our strategy that got us to this initial level, it's actually gonna start to cost a lot more money because we're gonna be further out on the periphery of people in the social media sphere who may care about our products.
0: So this is so this is great because you, you answered one of my questions already. And I was gonna ask, you know, how do you assess a strategy since te- typically? what a startup is offering is innovative and so there isn't really data. And so your answer is, well, you test it in little markets one at a time and then you collect data as you go along. So perfect. I want to follow up on this, this sort of theme of um, adjusting and readjusting as you go along. So one of the buzzwords in startup world I used it earlier is pivot. And so the idea is you, you learn something new about your product or about your market that you didn't know. And it forces you to change a little bit. another, buzzword less so much about startups, but about young businesses or uh, well-run companies is agile. And some of that is agile software development. Some of it is agile product or project management. And the idea is you've got this sort of continuous feedback loop in which you're, you're constantly learning and offering sort of another version of the thing. And in some sense, that's in concert with what you're saying on the other hand, it's a little bit at odds with the notion of kind of a long-term strategy. So David, early on, you said something like you have this long vision and you kind of pivot around little by little. Talk about how those two worlds, the constant need to pivot and this agile, let's come up with another thing, let's come up with another thing. How does that work with a longer-term strategic vision?
4: Well, I mean, I I think it's, it's all about alignment with that vision, because the, the, the key thing, what, in, what ends up happening is most pivots, in my opinion, are determined by really listening to your customers, listening to their feedback, and listening to, you know, usually somebody will have something, and they'll say, oh, wow, well, can it do this also? And, and a lot of times, the entrepreneur hadn't even thought about that, and, and so in thinking and in, in responding to one of their customers' inquiries about the, the, the expansiveness of the product, they, they, they come up with a whole new business line. One of our portfolio companies, a company called Freight Waves, which is based in Chattanooga, Tennessee, um, they, they started as a publishing arm. They had a, a, marketing, a, a media platform that did events and, and wrote articles, a blog basically, about the trucking industry, the freight industry. And one of their customers were like, you guys are compiling a lot of data about freight and about trucking. Can you guys, can you sell me that data back? And boom, a whole new business was born out of just, you know, a media company that was selling subscriptions is now able to sell data. And that data became so valuable and they were able to build that data into this really robust platform that, that that you know, in, in a field like trucking, right? Like in a, in a very nascent field that is more important to you because everybody am looking, everybody's got something on their desk that was sent here probably by a truck at, at the last mile. And so it's, you know, these having this big alignment and saying we're gonna be the the, the authority in freight yeah. leads you to say well to be the authority we first have to have voice so, so the company built a voice they were the publishing arm they, they knew freight better than anyone else but then a customer said do you, can you do you, you have this data that you're collecting can can I take a look at it and they were they were opportunistic enough at the tactical level to say well well does does creating this data business help us become the leading, help us maintain our position as the leading voice in freight? And as long as there's alignment between that tactic and that strategy and it sort of makes sense, it became, it became the driving force of the business. And so it, it happens a lot. I mean, in in the course of organizing the world's information, as Google has as its tagline, it said we can also sell back access to that data to people who are looking for certain keywords. Turns out that was a heck of a business trade because in addition to sort of profiling and and, and tagging all of the world's information, they now had a way to make $150 billion a year or somewhere around that that amount in ad revenue by selling words, which is amazing. And so it's like you're you're amazed at what you can find along the alignment of great strategy and, and how you can, if you're opportunistic and really keyed into the market, how you can turn that into a really profitable and really lucrative enterprise.
2: I wanted to touch on another element of strategy linking to something that Anna said before. So I wanted to dive into the talent strategy, making sure you have the right team. Anna, you were pointing out that in the life cycle of a startup, the startup uh, starts out with the macro vision, the big vision, then goes micro, focusing on the product development and then the execution, and then goes macro again, expanding the market. In your experience, how have you seen startups evolving their talent strategy correspondingly? Because we know they start out very lean with as few people as possible, but clearly, as the business grows, they have more things, more challenges to think about. Any thoughts on this? Any observations from your experience with companies?
3: Sure. Um, I think, first off, at the earliest uh, foundational Uh stages of a business and of a startup, the the core talent on the co-founding team or sweat equity team is really critical because you have to be able to uh, do a lot with a little. Um, And your people are your best asset and your best resource to be able to achieve that. So that doesn't mean that all your founders have to be engineers, for example. Um, but I think to us and part of our strategy, actually, on, on why we believe uh, that the rise of the rest is a great investment strategy is that we find and partner with entrepreneurs who have a legacy experience and expertise um, from past, you know, past businesses. So what I mean by that is um, that. We've got a company in Indiana, just outside Indianapolis, in Zionsville, Indiana, um, called 120 Water Audit, and this company um, helps municipalities and schools test their water to make sure that it's that it's safe, and they and they track that. But it's actually a, a SaaS business um, that's layered on top of that, so it's not just mail you the water kit and and that's it, which seems nice, but it's hard to see that as a scalable business. The founder of this business um, is a mom of three and had that experience of profound fear of what was actually in her kids' water, both at home and at school. But she was also actually a career SaaS executive. um, And Indianapolis is actually a, a place in the country, we actually think of it in many ways as like the SaaS capital, not only of the heartland, but of the country, there was a startup there that scaled up, went public, and then was taken private again called Exact Target that ended up getting acquired by Salesforce for $2.7 billion in 2014. And you see entrepreneurs like the one that we backed, who developed that deep expertise from working in the industry and for one of the giants in the industry. And then post-acquisition, when you spin out and you start up your own business, you've now got this deep wealth of experience and relationships and know-how that you can apply and redirect to other really interesting industries um, that have the potential to be transformative along that third wave track that David was talking about earlier. So I would say at the foundational level, the the founding team is really important because you really want to be able to get out of the gate um, as leanly as possible uh, so that Expectation management is met. You can retain ownership of your company without having to, you know, raise too much money to be able to fund fund your growth. Um, so that's first. Second, something that we see, and we actually talk to a lot of our um, advisors and experts in our circle about, is the strategy around hiring and building a culture. Um, and so it's not just about bringing people in to fulfill the the, the role and the job description. But it's really about how you, one, create a culture that attracts people, because that's critical to scale. And two, how you then actually like tactically implement that as part of your strategy. And something that, that we found, we talked to our companies about, of the 100 plus companies in our portfolio, we have startups with five people, we have startups with over 500 people and everything in between. And so something that we encourage everyone to do is to think about culture as early as possible, to think about how you can bring in a senior member of your C-suite who's going to be dedicated to hiring early on. Because what you find with um, startups at the earliest stage is that hiring and fundraising end up taking up the majority of time for the CEO and the executive. And this idea of hiring, just like fundraising, is actually, it's a job in and of itself, and it completely pulls you away from anything at the managerial level. So it's it's easy to say, it's hard to do when there are finite resources and capital. But the earliest that you can bring in um, a, a VP of talent um, or HR manager to help with that process, the better.
4: I will quickly add: I, I think it's it's also critical to have make sure you have the right people on the bus at the right time, because at some point, you know, there, there, there's often a point of your your business where. You know, you, you only need sort of a, an accountant to manage your books. But but then the business, if it's successful and continues to grow, you need a real CFO, somebody who who can be more strategic about thinking about the business than just somebody who can sort of reconcile your profit and loss, right? You, you need somebody who can think bigger about the opportunity. And usually that, that role is somebody that you can hire into your company if you've got a set culture, as Ana has mentioned. But sometimes that role is even to say, you need to replace yourself as CEO because you don't have the expertise to take the company to the next level. As, as, the, as the entrepreneur, as the founder, there's likely always going to be a role for that person in the company. But sometimes it's, it's about having the humility to say, we want the best team possible. And sometimes that means somebody else is the quarterback and I'm just going to be a player on, on the field or maybe even on the bench. And so I think making sure that that culture can support that but also that that as as founders and as entrepreneurs you you're willing to accept those changes because you're 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 again you're
0: focused on that big strategic goal. Have you seen that happen willingly? I mean, so you mentioned Lyft earlier. The biggest um, you know high high profile removal of a founder recently was Uber, right? Kalanick was was ousted basically, and it was not a, a happy transition. I mean, is it how common is it for CEOs or founders to say? yeah, my time's up, I'll, I'll sit on the board. It,
4: it's, it's not very common, but I think it's one of those things where, to honest point, you, you're not... So, sometimes what a CEO or a founder is really good at is product, is building things, it's the technology, and not the hiring and the fundraising and the re- reconciling sort of your, your relationship with your investors to sort of your vision. And there there are lots of people who are very good at some of those skills. And And, and I find that when founders can make this transition. If it, if it works for the business and if it works for the, the founder, they end up doing things that they're more aligned with and they're better at. And, and they hire somebody in who's better at being a CEO and it, it can work really well. Obviously there's lots of examples where it doesn't work well and where, where the management team either fights the new hire or it just, is, it's, 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 it's a turbulent situation. But when it works and it can work really, really well, I think the founder ends up happier about it. And I think the company typically ends up better. But um, but yeah, it, it is
0: a rare occasion. Right. Anna, you, you mentioned Indianapolis as the SAS capital of, of the Midwest or of the country of the world. And my mind immediately went to the sign on I-95 as you're as you're entering, as you're leaving Jersey and, and going towards the George Washington Bridge into Manhattan. There's a sign on one of the overpasses that says maybe it's Weehawken or Hoboken embroidery capital of the world. And it must be from like, thank you 30 or something like that. And so I was thinking about, you know, one day we'll flying cars, you know, have some message beamed to them over Indianapolis, you know, SAS capital of the world. And so, you know, in thinking about this, this far off future, maybe not so far off future, I'm thinking about a CFO, David, that, um, you know, can be strategic about what changes may come. How does, you know, long-term scenario planning or uncertainty planning factor into strategy at a, at a startup is it done at all what what what's done you know when when you've got this even if it's a seven year vision lots and lots can change in that seven years the macro environment can be radically different do startups do any sort of uncertainty evaluation you know probabilistic or qualitative or what
3: at the earliest stages I would probably well my initial answer is at the earliest stages probably not I think my real bigger picture answer is, in many instances, that's actually what the startup is trying to accomplish. So the the startups themselves are, to a certain extent, the forcing functions that, due to the transformative nature of the innovation that they're going after, um, can create more uncertainty in legacy businesses. So they're the disruptor class,
0: right? Well, that's interesting. Um,
3: yeah. so. Does a startup necessarily plan for an outsized shift in commodity prices, or how how the impact of a trade war may you know Im- impact imports or exports that tie to the raw materials of their of their business? Just hypothetically, like, maybe freight waves because they're in the logistics, like they are in the logistics business, but probably not most of them. And I think. That is, you know, something you'll a refrain you'll often hear from founders is, uh, like, "We've got to focus on what we're doing." And if we constantly have our eye on the ball of what our competitors are doing, um, that's not necessarily going to help us, like, get where we need to go. Um, that, that's maybe a partial answer to your question. Right.
4: Yeah. So two quick, two quick company examples. Right one of which is, is one of our portfolio companies. It's a company called Fiscal Note. And what they do is they basically track legislation across all sorts of country legislation, state, local legislation, to help their customers, which are usually Fortune 500 businesses or, or large businesses, understand what's coming in the wave of regulatory changes, right? And so this was not a really big business a couple of years ago because there weren't, you know, most companies had a government affairs person. And that person hired a law firm to do all of their lobbying and government affairs. But now companies like Uber and FedEx and all of these all of these big companies have like dozens of people in their government affairs because what Uber needs to understand both federal law as it relates to things like like worker uh, the, the the status of workers whether they're employees or or uh, contractors and they also need to understand lots of like local laws whether or not you a, a taxi. Uber can be considered a taxi or can they pick up people from the airport? And so having a view of that was really important. These guys were able to pivot and, and had this bigger sort of this, – this bigger marketplace, bigger, richer marketplace to, to, to feed from because the market changed. Another quick example is one of our growth company uh, – uh, portfolio companies is a company called DraftKings, which does daily fantasy sports, which you guys might have all heard of. Those guys counted on and, and was part of, you know, part of their hope for their success – was that sports betting would be legalized. And we've all seen how that, that wall has come tumbling down. And so, so the regulatory regime can quickly change the fortunes and opportunities of a company just by, you know, by just one law coming down in one state. And then that state becomes a bellwether for the other 49 states and even sort of opening up new global markets. So it's a really interesting thing that like so, some things sort of outside of the, the control of the company can really create or change or, or remove business opportunities in the vote of Congress
0: or the vote of parliament. So did draft Kings have a viable, whatever, you know, seven year view without. Um, they had the, to, they had to, right. I mean, they, you, you, you have
4: to understand you're going concerned if, if you're counting on, yeah. a, you know, a legislative body voting in your favor, but, but you also, again, you try to affect it and you try to recognize who's going to, you know, what, what state is it going to be most likely to, to happen in first? And you try to be in that state so that yeah. you can take advantage of that and sort of hopefully follow, follow the, the, the loosening of the regulatory regime. You see all of these, these cannabis companies doing the same thing, waiting for the regulators to relax their, 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 their stronghold on the market so that the free enterprise can start to take over and, and, and expand. Right.
2: As a follow-up to this, regardless of whether as a company you stay focused on what you have to do, how you want to shape the future, or you're trying to do a bit of scenario planning, being ready for at least one or two possible big scenarios that are very different that could affect your business, in either case, even as a startup, you do have to deal with market projections, financial projections. So try to give a business case, especially as you face venture capital, try to raise capital, trying to impress the market. But if you're developing a, continue, a completely new offering, any kind of financial and market projections will correspondingly be even more uncertain than they are for established companies. So from your perspective, from a VC perspective, when you're facing entrepreneurs pitching to you how do you evaluate these market and financial projections and i should say you know michael and i had had a podcast interview with uh, tim wickstrom of presenter it's a company that uh, offers uh, at-scale training for presentation and communication skills. And Tim was telling us in the podcast that one of their board members, who's an academic, had done a study showing that venture capitalists apparently respond a lot more to the passion and the degree of conviction of startup founders rather than to the numbers in the financial projections and the business case. So, is it true? How do you guys look at market projections, financial projections when you evaluate startups?
3: Like the numbers are, the numbers are, uh, the, the numbers are important. Um, period. Hard stop. Um, to, to say more, even if you're trying to chart a course in a new line of business, create a new industry, create a new type of offering within an existing industry, there are still some fundamentals that, from an investor standpoint. We'll take a hard look at. So first is a question of you know, what is the price point that you're selling and what is the frequency with which you're selling it? Is it um, a one-time purchase or a subscription? Is it a monthly subscription or is it annual? Can you charge $100 for it or can you charge $10,000 for it? That's at the top line. The second thing you might look at is how long does it take you to find and close your customer, otherwise known as like the sales pipeline. So there are some industries, Um, healthcare is actually one, um, education and and selling into schools is another that have notoriously long sales cycles. Selling into hospitals takes a really long time because there's just a ton of red tape and a ton of bureaucracy. Selling into schools is really hard. And David and I were just talking about this the other day because the calendar starts like once a year. So if you don't hit and sell by June, you got to wait until next year to try to sell into them again. So those are also some of the types of things that, that we think about. And then from there, and this is hotly debated right now, in particular with the slew of um, uh, big, the, some of the biggest name uh, startups that are about to come into the public market, is whether or not you have to be profitable um, and uh, to, <laughs> to scale and, and to bu- and to build a business. Right. Who, who would have um, thought
0: that that would be a question?
3: <laughs> yeah. So so something that we also look at is: um, are we funding? Uh, the development of the product are we funding product market fit are we funding first customers are we funding growth um, and are we funding growth to profitability or to cash flow break even and then you're profitable from there or are we just funding this company to get as big as it possibly can at any and all costs um, and uh, Reed Hoffman just came out with a book called "Like Blitz Scaling, which is basically a version of exactly that, like just get as big as possible and eat the competition and deal with the rest of it later. I'm paraphrasing, so don't quote me hmm. on that. Um, and so there's a lot to look at in the numbers um, when you think about the viability of the business that sits at the – foundation of whatever this big outsized idea is.
0: Right, right. Um, I want to be mindful of the time and begin to sort of wind down. I know that Jeff, you had a couple questions you wanted to ask, you want to come on up and we'll make sure you're mic'd. I'm nervous about questions from the
4: professor. <laughs> that's right, that's right. This is a Socratic well, you
1: know, method you know, class, so you know. students are taking notes because they, this will be on their exam. Everything you say will be on the
0: exam, so. <laughs> we'll bury some, we'll bury some uh, in there.
1: <laughs> And, and I think you just alluded um, to the question I'm about to ask, which deals with strategy and intellectual property. And in the literature, I think there was just a, a, a an article in the Harvard Business uh, Review about uh, moat versus first mover. Now, is it most important to create a moat around your intellectual property? And, and, and I'm asking of when you go and look at, at, at startups and um, in, in, in your interest in, in Investing in them, how do you sort of see there an approach where they're building a moat, they're protecting, they're getting the the, the patents or, or whatever way to protect that, that, that that's most important, or that they're just scaling as quickly as possible, they're just getting it out there and um and 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 and, and not their strategy doesn't involve protecting. And 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 then also related is something that we were briefly talking about is, is ecosystem. It, Again, when you're thinking about um, these startups in the Midwest, and as I mentioned, I'm from Kansas, I'm a proud Kansas Cityan, um, you know the, the special sauce in Silicon Valley or a place like Tel Aviv, you know, where you you just have this community, this ecosystem, which we've talked a lot about in our class. How do you factor that in, in when to invest or not to invest? Yes, it's important to have money, to have the capital. But then the, the smart money, the smart advice, the, the community, the, the regulators that are going to be helpful, all of that is very important also, and how does that – it's a very important part of your mission to help these communities, but you can't ignore the role of the ecosystem. Sure. Let me, I'll take the first part you take the
4: second sure. part. Sure. <laughs> um, so, so my belief, and it might be different from yours, so I'm interested to, to read your reaction on intellectual property. I, I think it is much better to have a big revenue and market share defense for intellectual property than relying on the courts. I think patents are important. I think it's important to have unique technology that can that can be protected and that you can say that we we have the best technology at achieving its certain you know r- result. But I think that the application of that technology for business purposes, i.e., sales, do you have customers? Are you able to generate? And, and win enough market share is by far the best defense. Sometimes it's, it's like you can't, if, if, if you've got the little bitty, if you're the little bitty company that's got the best technology, and then there's like three or four other companies that are huge and big, like they can tie you up in court forever litigating your patent right. And you will likely go out of business because you don't have a billion dollars on your balance sheet to support sort of what it costs to go through patent litigation. But if you have sales and you've got customers and you've got customers that are defending you saying, yeah, they've got the best technology by far. And, and you're able to stand that up. That is always, in my opinion, a much stronger defense than than relying on sort of something that the patent and trademark office is able to stamp and, and, and certify. Because because often the best technology isn't isn't the market leader, isn't the market winner. It's it's the company that has the best the best lead and the most amount of market share because it's it's so that that flywheel and that network effect of once you once you have the most customers, you get more customers. And and that flywheel begins and sometimes it begins with sort of the substandard or not the best technology. And and often you'll find that the market leader, the market share winner, will often buy the, the technology of the small company. Who's trying to defend its patents? you will just buy them and sort of will integrate the better technology into their their plan and maybe even charge more for it. So I, I think it's a, it's sales and market share. I think are much stronger or a much stronger way getting the product out there and sort of perfecting it to be patented is usually a better approach. I think than 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 trying to just rely on building the best product in the back.
3: I I agree. Oh, okay. I was going to say the same thing. Um, <laughs> the only thing I would add on the topic of moating um, your business is. I firmly believe that moats are not exclusive to deep, patentable tech. I think there are a lot of different ways that a business can build a moat. Um, And and something actually as as simple and truly actually complex as brand, um, I think, is is and can be an important moat for a business that can really help to make it uh, scale more quickly and make it defensible against some competition. Um, to answer the second question on ecosystems, so I'd like to spend a couple minutes talking about the work that Rise the Rest does on the platform and ecosystem support side. And to do that, I would ask that we all think about um, cities as startups. Uh, so that's my paradigm. I actually think about everything as a startup. I think Rise the Rest is a startup. I think my kids are a startup. Like, I think I'm a startup. Um, so that that's my worldview. But when you think about um, a city as a startup, it's helpful and informative when you think about what's actually happening at the ecosystem level, whether it's in Kansas City, in Chattanooga, in Salt Lake City, in Detroit, in Ann Arbor, in Denver, and on and on. Um, Because there is a lot happening and a lot percolating in these startup communities all across the country, and they are at different stages. But they are all, I think, by and large, trending up into the right. But it's important to understand what, what stage the ecosystem is at and what, what are the components of the, the, the startup ecosystem. Um, so first, on the platform side, uh, since for the past five years, we've done work where we've traveled the country uh, by bus. Um, it's a big red bus. Uh, and we we do an annual bus tour. We go to five cities in five days. We do about 60 hours of programming, and we engage about 4,000 people on each tour. Uh, We're about to do our eighth tour and cross our 40-city mark. So we have a good amount of data points and a good amount of learning over a period of time about what's happening at the ecosystem level. And so some takeaways for us from from these experiences um, have been that, startup communities are not just about the startups the scale-ups and the investors but there are other key players that contribute to the rise and success of a startup ecosystem and those include the universities um, the economic development arms the state and local sometimes even the municipal governments the startup support organizations which can range from a co-working space to an accelerator to a code academy uh, to affinity groups such as um, efforts that support women entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs of color, or entrepreneurs in a specific vertical like cybersecurity. So there are a lot of different factors that go into um, the rise of any, uh, the rise and maturation of a startup ecosystem. And a key part for for us and for how we think about it is partnership and collaboration. And this idea of partnership is actually something that. Uh, Steve Case touches on in detail in his his book, The Third Wave, and a lot of that thinking is foundational to the rise of the rest. But the idea is, let's take universities, for example, since we're sitting in a a classroom at AU. Universities play an incredibly important and, and potentially fulcrum role in the rise of startup communities all across the country. So you talked about Silicon Valley, for example. One of the core things that Silicon Valley has going for it is that there's such concentration of startup activity there. You can, in theory, like walk down the street and literally bump into someone who can help you with your business in some way. What do you do when you're in a place where the population of the whole city is under 200,000 or there are only a handful of startup hubs? So universities can play this central convening role, one- They've got the students, the talent of the future, who have the potential to maybe stay in the community and get hired into great jobs in the startup community. Two, they have alumni who love their university, have great affinity to their alma mater, and can maybe either help through funding startups or through hiring talent, or perhaps even returning to the place where they went to school and starting a business there. Three, you have the physical structure of a university as a great backdrop to host community gatherings. Four, you, you have uh, an education institution. And what we see in many, many cities and ecosystems is that universities not only play an inward facing role in terms of educating students, but increasingly partner with the community and startup organizations to be able to have an outward facing role in the community. And, um, and then I think the, you know, the very last piece of it is that there's, there's like, brand awareness and identity that can draw and attract broader attention to the community. So that's one deep dive example of how a player that's not a a startup or an investor impacts the startup community. And so we're constantly looking at um, the the different levers that are being pushed and pulled in different places um, in support of that. I'll, I'll close by sharing a couple of examples that I think are really compelling about ways large and small that... Um, these ecosystem uh, components help to support the scale of of a startup and innovation economy. Uh, One is in Madison, Wisconsin. Um, The president of the chamber of commerce uh, realized that rather than trying to continue to hammer a nail, uh, hammer the same, overhammer the same nail and try to get local capital risk averse capital to invest in startups. He said, you know what? There's a ton of money that understands investing in startups that's based in Silicon Valley, but there's no direct flight between San Francisco and Madison. If we can change that, we can make it really easy to get that capital into into our city. Another example is um, in in Penn State, in central Pennsylvania. The president of the university said, we've got all these great like deep-pocketed alumni who are obsessed with our football program and come back for games and tailgate. I, I, as university president, am going to host Many pitch events for our student entrepreneurs to pitch our alumni at tailgates. It doesn't get, in my opinion, simpler than that. A third example is in Chattanooga. There's a co-living building. So you think about co-working, there's now um, co-living in a building called the Tomorrow Building. So you had one of the exited entrepreneurs, so you know his company exited for somewhere between half a billion and and north of a billion, and he's reinvested in the community in a myriad of different ways, including real estate. He said, okay, I'm starting to now build a couple additional scale-up businesses. I need to really attract senior-level talent, but think about all that goes into the decision for someone to relocate. A key part is, where are we going to live? Who's my community going to be? So he took one of these buildings and converted it into a co-living space. And as he was hiring senior engineers, he said, don't worry about where you're going to live. Don't worry about signing a long-term lease. Come here. You can live in this really cool community. We've got programming here. There are going to be other engineers who live here. If it works out, great. If it doesn't, no harm, no foul. But he de-risked the key decision about where you're going to live when you when you relocate. So there, mm-hmm. those are just a handful of examples. And there are dozens, if not hundreds, of things that are happening in cities all across the country that are meaningful game changers when you think about how you can create not just a startup that can scale, but an entire ecosystem that can be supportive of startups at scale.
2: Michael, if if I can make just a very quick comment on this. It's it's very interesting, and... uh, And I think when you think about the advantages of established ecosystems, they are all very clear. Anna just mentioned you can walk out of your office in San Francisco or Silicon Valley and find just bump into somebody who can help you with the startup. But, you know, since I live in San Francisco, I work here in Silicon Valley, I'm also noticing the less obvious disadvantages of established innovation ecosystems. And these are a degree of complacency and groupthink. And the complacency in Silicon Valley, you can see, it, for example, in the escalating cost of living, which is beginning to drive talent somewhere else. The groupthink, in many ways, is obvious if you go to any social event, any dinner which involves tech people here in Silicon Valley. And this, I think, ties back to something that Anne and David noted earlier, which is in other parts of the country, you see things differently, partly because you might be in the heart of the manufacturing sector, in the heart of the agricultural economy, and so you will come up with a different more out of the box ideas compared to what you could have if you were based in san francisco and you always talked only to people who are like you and who think like you and i think this is something that is providing a definite incentive even from a financing perspective as you were mentioning now from Silicon Valley-based VC funds to also look at the opportunities elsewhere, elsewhere in the country, and therefore gives the potential advantage to other ecosystems who are new and hungrier.
0: It's a great, it's a great point. I mean, you know, I, I studied urban studies uh, in college, and one of the seminal texts is uh, Jane Jacobs' book, and you know her. Point over and over again. I mean, her model for the best city is Greenwich Village, Manhattan, and over and, <laughs> and over and over again. It's all about facilitating structures and and sidewalks that enable people to bump to bump into each other. That's sort of, you know what it's about. So, look, I know there were a couple of students who had questions, and then we'll uh, we'll wrap up after that. Um, before the student questions, I want to go back to that first poll. Hearing what you've heard, how many of you now are interested in a career in Entrepreneurship or in venture capital, raise your hand. I know, right? Did we change anyone's <laughs> minds? <laughs> right, still, <laughs> still, four. He kept you even. He kept you even, even. even his ground. <laughs> okay. So, um, awesome. yeah, come on up so we can hear you on uh, on mic. Okay. So, out of all the uh, startups that you've invested in and examined, what what do you look for when you decide to choose one? What what are the qualities
1: that you uh, that stick out? To you?
4: I mean, I, I think it's, if, if I had to pick a couple of silver bullets, right, thing number one is the, the passion and domain expertise of the founder. Are, are you the person that's going to lead this company through thick and thin to, to get to wherever the next, the next set of milestones are? Do you have the requisite knowledge that you can do this without a lot of support? Because you don't always have a lot of support at 2 a.m. when you're like championing your, your, your dev team to continue building the product. The second thing is, do you, and it's kind of closely related, do you have that swagger that can walk into a dozen VC shops and ask for money? Do you have that swagger that can, can be on an elevator and have a, such a refined elevator pitch that you're talking to the CEO of, 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 of your, your competitor, your biggest competitor, and, and sort of make your elevator pitch at why you're a worthy competitor? Can you win the business? Like, soliciting, like, business is hard. And asking somebody to give up their money to you for whatever you're selling, that's hard work. And like the, the CEO's got to be able to do all of that. And then the biggest sell that you've got to make is you've got to convince, convince somebody else to spend their time achieving your vision. So if you can't convince others to come work for you, you can't convince customers to come spend money with you, you can't convince investors to buy from you, if you don't have that swagger, nothing else you do will be successful in, in, in that particular enterprise. But I think for me, it's it's... Is the founder smart and got deep domain expertise and can they sell, do they have that swagger to, to sell when there's not much to sell? Hmm.
3: The, in addition to what David said, cause I agree with all of that. I would add, um, really thinking a, a, a big kicker for me is how, how big is the market opportunity and where does the, where does this business fit within that market opportunity? So for example, um, you know, we have an investment in the alternative travel space. I'm, you know, travel and hospitality is, a, is a, a trillion dollar industry. Alternative travel is about, you know, 10% of that and growing more rapidly than anything else in the market. Um, I'm like fascinated by that and think there's outsized opportunity there. So, you know, we, we've talked a lot about the like, feel good components of the, of, of the companies that, that we look at and the attributes of founders. But at the end of the day, we are also investing and we have a fiduciary responsibility with the capital that we manage to realize returns on that. And the venture capital investing model is very specific. It's different than investing in stocks. It's different than investing through private equity. It's different than investing in a small business. So we also have to look for startups that specifically fit our returns model. Um, we see tons of great businesses with phenomenal founders that are probably going to be 10 to $50 million businesses. And those are awesome. And part of me wishes we could invest in, in, in founders like that, but that's not our model. Um, so that's a key piece of it.
0: Super. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, we had one more question. Um, what is the, um, the, the startup that you're really proud to have invested in since the beginning of the revolution
2: all our children
0: <laughs> we, love
4: we love them all equally um, I'll, I'll, I'll go up with two so the one that i'm really excited about is the one I, I mentioned earlier freight waves these guys the company is really sort of transforming the way that freight is bought and sold they just launched last week, a week uh, last week a what, what is a freight futures market commodity most products have sort of most commodities can be bought you can buy wheat on 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 futures you can buy gasoline and fuel on futures you can buy most things on futures but you still can't buy sort of the truck that ships your container from la to chicago on a future with a with a with a hedge against future price changes and they just launched this product so we went from a media business to a data business now to a futures marketplace as well. And sort of that evolution is amazing. And, and one business is, is relies on, the subsequent business relied on the previous business in such a, such a smart way that they pulled it all together. And now as a result of these guys, you can buy freight from Chicago to LA and hedge it against whatever the fuel or driver shortage creates in the future. so I think that's really cool. Another business that I think is fascinating, um, we invested in the business in Madison, Wisconsin, that had relocated. Their investors were based in Boston, and the, the team was like, we don't want to be here anymore. We want to go back home. They were graduates of the University of Wisconsin. They moved back to Madison. They added, like, they, they added another six months of, 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 of burn onto their company because just moving from the high expense place of Boston to Madison and and the, the team were weather experts. The, the, the founder was at one point like the global expert in hail. And so they built this device that can track several dozen different weather elements. But what they are able to do now is they are able to predict, you know, everything from hail. I know to, it's going
0: to be cold in Madison
4: and Boston. Well, but, but when a tornado touches down, they can say the tornado touched here and not there cool. within a very specific you know radius and zone, which is really important to like insurance companies yeah. and car dealerships and any any anybody where there are major weather events. So it's a really cool company that's got global global opportunities available to them. As you think about farming and and you know climate change is only increasing sort of these dramatic weather events. So I think it's it's an amazing company. Uh, with cool technology and just great salt of the earth kind of people. What's that one called? Understory. Understory. based in Madison. Awesome. Thank
0: you.
3: It's so hard for me to choose. This is the toughest question that you've asked. So I won't, I won't really choose one, but I will say I'm, I'm very proud that our fund um, is, is invested in a lot of female founders. Hmm. Um, I think um, as with everyone in in the industry, we, we can, and we should do better um, than we are. Um, But I, I think, you know, the industry average is that like 2% of venture capital goes to, um, to female founders and, and, and somewhere around 25% of our fund uh, is not in, currently invested into female founders. Um, and one that I did reference before, but I will say again, is our St. Louis-based uh, travel wear company called, called Somersault. There were a lot of people who said, man, you guys are killing it but you're based in St. Louis and how can we invest in a next generation, you know, retail brand that's not in New York or not in LA, like we just don't see the swimwear in St. Louis play. Um, and they not only, you know, were great when we invested, but they had such accelerated growth that they raised a meaningful follow on round six months after we invested, which in our in, which in our space is, is pretty rapid hockey stick style growth. So we've got, we have a number who, who have followed that trajectory, but um, those are, are, are two women in one company that I'm particularly proud to back. From. Well, thank you guys so much for, for yeah. having us. Th- thanks
0: to the students, thanks to Jeff Soslin, and thank you again, really, to sure. Anna Mason and David Hall for coming and doing this, yeah, this is great, thank you, thank you. Hey, it's Michael again. Do us a favor and forward the episode, share it on social, tell a friend, and help us share M4Edge. Thanks for being curious.